I lived in Italy for two and a half years. And while I was there, I was thinking the entire time about, okay, you know, after the Olympics are done, there's something I'm going to take from Italy and I'm going to use it to go back to the United States. I'm going to start a company. And there was a long list of things. And somewhere towards the bottom of the list was this encounter I'd had with a gentleman by the name of Cristiano Cremonelli, who was a very small regional producer of specialty Italian meats. From the Insight Studio, this is Found in the Rockies, a podcast all about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, the founders, funders, and contributors, and the stories of what they're building. I'm Stephanie Sample, and on today's show, Chris Bowler on how he created Creminelli Fine Meats. Creminelli manufactures and markets premium Italian meat products for snacking. The company was founded in Salt Lake City in 2007 and now consists of 65 employees located at a facility just west of the Salt Lake City Airport, with several co-packers around the country. The products range from salami and prosciutto to European-style hands. Creminelli products are made through traditional Italian processes using only premium whole ingredients that are clean and simple, including humanely raised U.S. pork, sea salt, and organic spices. Creminelli's products are sold through premium retailers such as Whole Foods, Starbucks, and other gourmet premium retailers. Chris lives in Salt Lake City, Utah with his wife and four children. Chris is a fluent Italian speaker, having lived close to five years in Italy, including a stint as the official liaison of the U.S. Olympic Committee in Italy in preparation for the Torino 2006 Olympic Winter Games. Chris has an undergraduate degree in economics from Stanford University and counts the Bay Area as his third home. The first being Maryland, where he was born and raised, and the second Salt Lake City, Utah, where he now lays his roots. When Chris has free time, he likes exploring the mountains of Utah and is an avid trail runner. This pastime is an important counterpart to his love for food and adventurous eating. Chris, one of the things I think of when I think of you, I've been thinking about your story since we met last week, is just this idea that you graduated from Stanford in 1999. I keep looking at that on your LinkedIn and think like, what would that be like when everybody was starting a tech company and and you didn't? So what were you doing in 99 and what was going through your head in that kind of madness of the world? Yeah, it was... It was a really cool moment. I remember there was a computer science professor who said, you know, there are all sorts of information problems out there. And he he would give us examples of information problems and basically said, if you can solve an information problem, in other words, information like how do I, what's the least expensive way to, to travel from San Francisco to Los Angeles or you know, there's all of these information problems that if you can solve them, whether you're Travelocity or whether you're Uber or whatever it was, whatever the solution would eventually be, there are just an infinite number of information problems. If you can solve that problem, you have a technology that 
that you can commercialize. And that was, that was the feeling. It was like, it was like all around us, there were these information problems that the internet could now solve and making people's lives better. And in giving us as the creators or the, the, the solvers of these problems, give us an opportunity to jump into the economy and, and solve a problem and, and make a company, make money, have, be successful. Of course, you know, Google had, you know, really put their arms around all information and, and started to solve those problems. So there was a bit of a, almost a, a hysteria level excitement about the opportunity to solve information problems. And I, I felt that energy and I, I saw it everywhere I looked. I had, you know, people in my dorm, there was one kid in my dorm, he graduated with having sold his website for $2 million. And these things really captured our imagination. And, and so I graduated and, and actually did get into technology, although in a, in a pretty unsophisticated way, we were just building dot-com websites. So that was how I launched from, from Stanford is starting building people's websites. And I'll add that, you know, most of my friends, the ones who were level-headed and wise and balanced, they went and did things like investment banking and consulting. And that was kind of the next level of their education. I could not get myself on that track. And I don't know to what degree that's just built-in personality. I, I have trouble just following in in predefined tracks or if it was the excitement of entrepreneurship that was all around me. But I could not get myself to go in that direction. And so I just threw myself out there with one kind of tiny grasp on the world of technology and entrepreneurship that got me excited. Oh, that's so interesting. And one thing I, I thought was interesting too was you were an economics major, but you've told me that your senior year, you were taking more like tech type classes. Is that what everyone was doing? There were certain classes that were ballooning uh, because of because of the tech interest. There were a lot more computer science majors. You know, some of it was coding. Some of it was just like how to use Photoshop and HTML. And, and then some of it was more like internet technologies and type classes. So, so yeah, there, they were ballooning. There were plenty of people who, who had, you know, college debt on top of them and were a lot more focused on, okay, how, how am I going to jump into the workforce and start paying that off? So that was still the majority. But yeah, there, there were plenty of us getting picked off by this, this excitement. And so, and there were classes that were ballooning in ways that they hadn't before. Mm, that's awesome. So you said you were doing dot-com stuff. I, I think what you're saying is the modern day, like website developer, like, and so I'm assuming like small businesses that didn't have an online presence. Is, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. You know, at the, at the time it seemed a lot more exciting. You know, I drive down 101 in, in California and you'd see garden.com and pets.com and everything.com. And, and each one was like considered a, a massive breakthrough, you know, in our ability to get information and get products in, in ways that we never had before. So in 1999, that was a big deal. These were breakthroughs. But ultimately, yeah, it did kind of, you know, it, it was just building websites for people. And some of them were simple you know, simple informational websites. And some of them had some kind of technology that got you to information or products that, that you otherwise couldn't get to. But yeah, that's right. Web development. I love it. And it was all the craze around it. 
were you all thinking in terms of how to monetize this and there's a lot of money here? Or was it still more of a like a creative journey that didn't have its clear path to monetization? I mean, I, you mentioned your roommate, so obviously you knew people can sell websites. It's a great question. I think it was a combination of two things. One, just being a kind of fresh graduate and trying to understand how you were going to insert yourself into the professional world and realizing that people your age weren't just finding a foothold, but actually jumping out and, and making real, you know, being right in the middle of this, this exciting new chapter of technology in our world. So it was a combination of saying, yeah, there, there's a way that I can, can make money, but also you could go from not being in the professional world at all to, to jumping in with what little understanding you had of technology and, and whatnot and immediately make a contribution that seemed pretty, pretty much in the center of, of everyone's interest and the center of what was going on in the business world. So that was super alluring. I don't know that we had like really visions of grandeur so much as just excitement that there was a really extremely relevant place for us to to start our, our professional lives. Cool. So this might be totally naive and I should probably know this, but I don't. So in 1999, like your class, your graduating class, was that the time where people were already like quitting college and just starting tech companies or was education still kind of first at Stanford? You know, Stanford has a collection of very focused individuals, super bright. So it it still was just kind of this narrow section of students who felt that calling, felt that pull to, to jump. And, and so I didn't, I actually didn't know of anybody who left Stanford to start a company. I knew of plenty who were starting companies while they were in school. And, you know, Stanford is a little bit more flexible that way. It's not an overwhelming workload, maybe in some majors. But so I would say for the most part, people were focused on getting their full education. But at the same time, there was that section of us who were also getting caught up in trying to figure out how to jump into the world of dot-com and technology and, and so forth. Yeah. It still feels like, like for my generation, even a new thing. So I, I love, I love hearing your story and just knowing that entrepreneurial vibe is always there. Just, it always looks different, always innovating. You know, I think when you were saying information today, I think the word like everyone's talking about is data, right? So it's just evolving over time and becoming more interesting. So you, you're putting up websites.com. What happened? I think it was April 2000, you know, that the hysteria, the bubble, it, it just, it all kind of went away overnight. So graduating from Stanford with an economics degree, you know, in Utah, cause I moved to Utah soon after I graduated, it seemed like an inexpensive kind of landing pad place where I could, you know, just, just work and, and, and get to work. So there was a lot of interest. Anybody who had, was trying to do anything in technology was interested in talking to me. And so opportunities were kind of everywhere. And I was finding ways to, to kind of cut my teeth and, and learn my way through the early stages of being an entrepreneur. But once April 2000 hit and there really was no more capital available, you know, I, I had to find other 
other opportunities. And so I actually jumped into a nonprofit project. It was very entrepreneurial, but not technology other than we built the, you know, we had to, we were selling tickets for an experience. And so we had to build the website and the whole ticketing platform and all that. But other than that, it was not a technology play. And so I quickly, very pretty quickly moved out of technology and on to other things. Hmm. How did that feel? Did it feel like you were leaving this new innovative thing or because of what happened with the bubble? Did it feel like, oh, thank God, get me away from it? <laughs> you know, it didn't feel that way. And, and I easily could have stayed in technology. Sometimes I really don't understand why I didn't stay in technology because I love technology. I've always been a math and science person. But, you know, I was more than anything craving good mentors. I was craving any opportunity to lead projects, bigger projects. I was anxious to see the world and get new experiences. And, and so that kind of that kind of trumped everything else, that, that real desire to just try something new, meet new people. And, and so this nonprofit project, as it happened, I spent over the next year and a half, I spent about half of it overseas in Europe putting together this, this project and, you know, spent time with a mentor who turned out not to be a great guy, but definitely had a lot to teach me. What do you mean by that? Did you have bad experience or? Yeah. I, I you know, naively I, I jumped in with him, not knowing everything about him. And, you know, I, I've never done the deep research to understand all of the issues of his life, but I, I know enough to know that he's he's done some some bad things, hurt some people, and and just from a personal experience, you know, when things got tough, he was the guy who just got, uh, in his own words, he turned into an ogre. So, um, <laughs> uh, not the kind of person that I wanted to pattern my life after, but have to give him credit for teaching me a lot about the world and and how it works. And, and at times was just we had a great time. You know, I wasn't directly exposed to any behavior that gave me concern. He was a very, very endearing and and fun person, but mm. but had another side to him that that yeah. uh, luckily I did get a lot of exposed to a lot of. Other than at the very end when things got tough and you're at game time, so that's actually a great insight for new founders listening to think about. Is I think. A lot of times when you're new to the startup world or starting a company, if someone comes along and is willing to mentor you, it's really easy to say yes quickly. And, and, you know, people are people like we could learn a lot of good things from personality mismatches and all that. So today, though, you have your meat company, like this amazing little, not little, not little at all, artisan meat company. And at some point you must have got into that. So how did going from dot-com to nonprofit lead you to Italian premium meats? Well, I'll say that the, the first part of my career before I moved to Italy, it, it was... So Senator Bennett, former Senator of Utah, he said his career was a checkered career. And that's how I think of my career. It was checkered. I mean, I, it was all over the place. It was government. It was nonprofit. It was tech startup. I was looking for opportunities to kind of develop personally, develop into to being an entrepreneur. And so I, I jumped around and and I, I worked for the state of Utah doing working on the Olympics for Salt Lake City. And that seemed exciting and another another whole area I could expose myself to. When that was over, I was applied to business schools 
I did not get into business school, at least not the two that I applied to. That kind of rocked my world a little bit. I thought I was pretty special, but it turns out that on, on paper, I was not much. <laughs> so I didn't get in and, and I decided to take my family to Italy to work on the Olympics in Torino, 2006. I was an Italian speaker already. And so I lived in Italy for two and a half years. And while I was there, I was thinking the entire time about, okay, you know, after the Olympics are done, there's something I'm going to take from Italy and I'm going to use it to go back to the United States. And I'm going to start a company. And there was a long list of things. And somewhere towards the bottom of the list was this encounter I'd had with a gentleman by the name of Cristiano Cremonelli, who was a very small regional producer of specialty Italian meats. And I did some research for him and we figured out a few things. And then we did some trips to the United States. So I was still living in Italy, did some, you know, kind of feasibility projects. What would it be like trying to make these products in the United States? And because we figured out that in, exporting them from Italy and importing them into the United States just didn't work from a technical legal standpoint. So, you know, little by little, that relationship deepened. And we were learning that the specialty food industry in the United States was taking off. And by 2006, there was a real kind of inflection point of, you know, specialty cheeses, you know, olives, olive oils, chocolates, like this was becoming more mainstream. You're seeing more of it in traditional grocery. There was a real opportunity. And so it worked its way up to the list until when I got back to the United States in 2006, it was a pretty exciting project. That's amazing. So how did you guys meet in Italy? So among the things that I was doing in Italy, I was the official representative of the state of Utah in Italy for economic development, for trade, for a connection between the state of Utah and the region of Piedmont, which is where Torino is, for kind of Olympic coordination. And the, the Piedmont region, as this is a fairly common practice in Italy, they put on a press conference for this office that I set up. And so at this press conference, they let everybody know in the region, they sent a notice, if you are interested in doing business in the United States, come by, meet this new representative from the state of Utah. And Cristiano sent his brother-in-law to meet me and just you know check it out because Cristiano was interested in, in expanding his small family business. And so his, his brother-in-law ended up being my right-hand man the entire time I was in Italy. We got very close and he helped me do everything I was doing there. And then that led to the relationship with Cristiano and then eventually bringing Cristiano to the United States. How long did you guys know each other? Did you know you were going to do a business together? Yeah. So I, I mentioned we first met in 2004, early 2004, just a few months after I had arrived to Italy. And then, you know, we, we talked and, you know, this conversation spread over the course of a couple of years. We talked about, you know, what it would look like to either import or his products in the United States or produce them directly in the United States. We determined that importing was not a possibility. And so we started working on, you know, could we produce products in, in the United States? And so, we, we actually sent a few little aging cabinets to the United States. We found some suppliers. We did some test productions. And they are all turning out really quite well. And when I got back to the United States in 2006, we, were, we had figured out that there was something there. And it was a project that I was going to work on. And 
I wasn't fully dedicated to this being my thing, but it was interesting and, and exciting. And I've always been a lover of good food and particularly Italian food. So, you know, I, this was something that was center cut in terms of my personal interests. Wait, I want to stop you real quick. What do you mean you weren't convinced this was your thing? Like what was holding you back? What was going on? You know, I will say at the time it felt really small and I just felt like, Hey, you know, how do I, I just got done with being the official liaison of the U S Olympic committee in Italy. And I was meeting with amazing people who were showing up in the news regularly, you know, like Bodie Miller. And, you know, I, I just felt like I was part of this relevant world that, you know, this felt very small. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I, I wanted to take a bigger, wider grasp of, of, of the world. And so being a small artisan salami producer felt a little bit small. So I was just looking at other projects, other things that I could bring to the United States from Italy. I also hooked back up with a friend from right after, he was a roommate right after college, Jared Lynch. His background was finance operations, accounting, and great compliment to kind of my skill set. And so I kind of got him engaged in, in looking at projects. And, you know, finally, after things continue to build, summer of 2007, we had contacted a small specialty food store in Salt Lake City. They've since grown and they've done wonderful things. It's uh, Tony Caputo's Market. We'd reached out to them. They were really excited about what we were doing. For them, this was really important. You know, this was center in their world. And it helped give me a vision to some degree of, okay, this is really important to somebody. And But they also offered us their basement where we could make salami. And then we could kind of sell it to their customers and, and get feedback and see how it went. And so we did that summer of, of 2007. We finally said, you know, Cristiano, come to the United States. We'll find you a place. We'll get you a car. And we found some farmers up in Logan, Utah, about two hours north. There was an old beat down slaughter facility in Ogden, Utah, about halfway between Logan, Salt Lake, they had a processing room that was available, I think, Wednesday afternoons. So we had the farmer bring the hogs to Ogden, where they slaughtered them. And we got whole carcasses that we would butcher. And we had set up our machinery there. And Christian and I, at times, you know, I, I was still in D.C. Jared was in Seattle. We would fly in and out helping Christiano run these productions on a weekly basis. We grind them, stuff them. We take these, these, they're effectively sausages at that phase. You take them down to Tony Caputo's basement where we had these two aging cabinets set up and we would age about 100 to 200 pounds of salami every month and sell them to his customers, you know, and see what the reactions were and try to get the pricing right and, and work on recipes. And that was, that was kind of phase one. And, and, at that point, I was giving more and more time to it. I, I saw that there was a market for it. I saw it with my own eyes. We were having this like intense learning experience working with his customers who were the foodiest foodies of, of <laughs> the Mountain West. And then we had to make a decision, okay, are we going to turn this in from a, an experiment into a business? And so we decided to take one more big step, and that was to go to the Fancy Food Show January of uh, 2008. It was usually in San Francisco. That year it happened to be in San Diego. So we put some money into making a nice booth. It was homemade, but it was nice. 
And we actually brought one of the aging cabinets with us because we said these people need to see exactly what we're doing and understand, uh, you know, why this is different than what's being done at, at, you know, bigger factories. And so we did. We set it up and put it all on a trailer and drove it from Utah down to San Diego and spent three days meeting all of the kind of retailers you'd want to meet if you were in the specialty food business. And we were absolutely floored by how much interest there was in every corner of the United States for specialty meats to go along with the specialty cheeses and olives and everything else that was starting to really take hold in the United States. So then we knew we had something and that's really when we knew we were going to dedicate our time to it. We're going to start, you know, gathering money from friends and family and, 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 you know, and, and get underway. That's amazing. So that was the, that was the breakthrough moment, the response of kind of the food community in your product in San Diego at an expo booth. That's amazing. That's right. Yeah, (laughs) that was exactly right. And, you know, I think at the time we didn't, even have a full under grasp of, of the response. And, you know, years later, we would look back at the list of people who came by and it was like Trader Joe's and Costco and, and Whole Foods. And we looked at this list, we're like, Oh my goodness, you know, everybody came by. And, and so, yeah, we were, we, we recognized that, that, that we had touched on a nerve. We had touched, we had touched on something that, that really uh, was resonating. Yeah. I know we've talked about it in the past, this idea that you felt like you were doing something small. You weren't sure if this was the same game as everyone was talking about kind of in San Francisco. So from that moment to today, when did you have that realization that what you were doing was not small? That's a great question. And I don't know, I can't point to any one moment when, you know, we kind of recognized that there was a bigger opportunity. It, it just was happened so gradually, so iteratively, you, you know, we would take the, take the one step and say, oh, wow, you know, we we're, we're shipping our first order via UPS to the East coast to a specialty food store, which, you know, is, I think, I don't know if it's in business anymore. It was a small store, I think in North Carolina, very first order. And then out of state, we had been selling to, to, to Caputo's. And then, you know, we'd get the interest of somebody like Dean and DeLuca and, and then like, oh, wow, we've, you know, this is, this is bigger, you know, and then, then we were selling through the Williams Sonoma catalog. And then, and then we were, you know, we got approval to sell to one region of Whole Foods. Like, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is bigger where this is national distribution and then more regions of Whole Foods. And, and then I think, you know, a, a big turning point was when we got business with Starbucks to be on one of their sandwiches. And that, that was when we really had the capital to do things like build a professional brand, build a professional executive team with a head of marketing and head of sales. And we weren't kind of doing everything ourselves. And that was probably the moment where we said, okay, we can build a really, you know, a real company here with, with a culture and, and employees and, and, you know, kind of make our mark on the, on the world. But, but it was slowly, it was never a single moment. Yeah. I, I know you most from your, your meat and cheese trays at Starbucks. I've told you how much my daughter likes them, but 
what the world might not realize is, is your story of how you actually started with them with ham that was on an existing sandwich. How was that your entry point? Like, how did you know Starbucks to get on their sandwich? It was definitely a backdoor. Starbucks had bought a company called La Boulange, which had a dozen or so stores in the San Francisco Bay Area, I think maybe one in, in Southern California. And they had bought that chain and, and had decided to build a brand new food program that they would launch nationally using the recipes, products, and, and style of La Boulange. And so the La Boulange people stopped by a fancy food show years after the, the original one where we, we first launched. And they, they found us at our booth and, and they were looking for innovative ways to serve high, super high quality sandwiches uh, to Starbucks customers at their, you know, eight to 10,000 stores at the time. And, and so we got, had a, got to have a conversation with people who kind of came from our same world, especially food. These were two Frenchmen, Pascal and Nicholas. And, and so Pascal and Nicholas were very open to what we were doing and understood, you know, the difference between what we were doing and what would come off a, you know, a major industrial factory line. And, and they were interested in that kind of quality. So we, we worked with them on creating a sandwich and they, you know, and they launched it nationally in, at Starbucks because the ham that we were making was like what they were used to in France, but different than what they could find anywhere else in the United States. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing is, you know, not long after Starbucks kind of, you know, they, that program ended and, and those two gentlemen, you know, moved on. They continue to be dear friends and doing lots of really cool things, but not with Starbucks. Hmm. I actually worked at Starbucks when the acquisition happened. So I remember it as a barista. It was great. Um, okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I was like, where is Starbucks going with this? I thought it was a, it was an interesting move at the time. Now today it would be considered normal. There's so many acquisitions like that. One thing that I think is interesting is when people think of food, although it's becoming more common, they usually don't think of venture starting to think of private equity for sure. But you've raised venture funds. You've had a seed round, you had a series A and now private equity and now private equity again. Can you tell us a little bit about what is it like to raise money for a food product? It is a lot easier now than it was when we started. I, I think that starting with our friends and family, I don't believe that they understood why they should invest or I, I think most of it was charity money. I, I don't think people understood at the time that the whole world of food was going to change so drastically. And, and so there really, there really is a, a before and after. And the before was hard. We, we had to scrape. The good part about that was, and, and we did start in 2008, as, as you heard me mention, that was not a good time to raise money, even not in food. But we, we had to figure out how to be profitable from the very beginning. That was the only way we could finance the company. And, and you know, we were buying machinery, which is, is capital intensive. We were, you know, doing all of our own processes. So between, you know, the financial crisis and the banks really clamping down and, you know, nobody really understanding food 
as an investment that you wanted to take risk in, you know, maybe more kind of transactional things, but something that you wanted to kind of believe in and put your money behind and, and expect to get a venture style return. People didn't think about it in that way. But, you know, really subsequent to the movement uh, in specialty food was, you know, a lot of the, the, the better for you movement and food and that really picked up steam. And so it's become a lot easier now. There are dozens and dozens of funds, venture funds on food that just did not exist when we were trying to do this. And ultimately, we wouldn't have it any other way because it, it taught us discipline in, in terms of how we managed the company and how we managed our finances that really put us in the position to grow the way we wanted to and then to to exit the way we wanted to. But, but yeah, it's it's not e- it was not easy. Yeah. Then we also talked about when private equity bought you the the first time around, how that was a major moment. Like, I I always wonder about this for the kind of the startup journey, these moments that feel significant. And then I, I also know the flip side of them when you're living them, they're like significant for like an hour, then it's like back to work. So what was that like when a private equity firm approached you and you decide to make a deal with them? Yeah, so we we felt like we had very few options, and so when we got that relationship going, it, it it was it was interesting. They had the vision of you know investing and and growing the company. It was kind of it was interesting. It was a group that was maybe a private equity mindset, but with venture dollars in the sense that they were willing to make much smaller investments, and you know. I will say we we quickly got the sensation that this was not the cream of the crop. You know, they they kind of patched something together. They didn't raise quite as much money as they had planned to, and and it was just a little awkward, pretty much from the start. And you know, that's one area that I think my inexperience probably did not did not help and. You know, I would have done it differently. I would have probably either not raised the money or just spent a little bit more time, maybe patched something together myself with direct investments. But uh, again, I think that uh, attribute that to there not being a ton of interest in, you know, investing, I don't know, two, $3 million in a food company. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for that. Are you okay if I transition to our rapid fire question? happy to do it. Awesome. Okay. First one, you'll know this one because it's something we do in our organization. What are you looking forward to in the next 30 days? This is an easy one. I have a annual trip with some of my closest friends. A lot of them are entrepreneurs. We do some kind of adventure or survival trip and we are going to scuba dive and spearfish off the coast of Belize in early March. Oh, that, that is an easy one. That sounds amazing. If your company shut down for a week and you could do anything you wanted with your time except work, what would you do? I may have already just answered that question, but another thing that comes to mind is I have been aching to sit down with my parents and record all their stories. They have some really cool stories, great stories, and I just I want that week to sit down with them and record all their stories. That's a great idea. That will be fun. I'll have to follow up with you on that one. Anything binge-worthy in your life right now, books, podcasts, shows that are playing a role in taking your time? You know, this is probably a sad answer, but right now 
I am so into jazz basketball. The only thing I binge right now are jazz basketball games. They are, I, you know, they're the only professional team in Utah, but they are such a quintessential team and they're, they're winning, but without that kind of like crazy goat superstar that everybody's talking about, like they're winning as a team and, and I love it. I love it. Mm, I love the jazz game too. I always take my husband whenever we go there. Since I'm from Salt Lake, it's like, we're going to a jazz game. I follow too. Who is someone that you're really looking up to in life right now? You know, the person who comes to mind is Naomi Osaka, in part because she just beat Serena Williams last night in the Australian Open. But over the last few years, every time I, I see her show up on TV, there was that episode with Coco Goff where she gave her, you know, center court interview after after Osaka had won the match. And it, it seems like every time she opens her mouth, there's just like just total humanity and goodness comes out. And I feel like she is like teaching the world how to be better humans. I love hearing her talk. And, and as well as that paired with her like crazy fierce competitiveness, because of course you can't get to where she is as an athlete without being, you know, fiercely competitive, but just sincere goodness as well. Mm, so good. If you were not the founder of your company, what do you think you would be doing in life right now? That's a great question. I think I would probably be doing something in tech that probably wouldn't be going anywhere. <laughs> but I, I, I think I found my sweet spot in food. You know, it, it's it's uh, it's a good fit for me. A technology, I think I probably would have been the moonshot guy who was never actually getting anything done. <laughs> so I think I, I'm, I'm lucky to be where I am. Very good. What is the current challenge you're facing? A lot of people don't know this, but just prior to the pandemic that we all think about and talk about, there was a, a pig pandemic outbreak not long uh, before called African swine flu that's wiped off at like a quarter of the, the world's pig population. And so, you know, we're, we are in, in my world dealing with dual pandemics and while also trying to merge two companies, uh, a small company and a larger company across the, the country from Salt Lake City to Rhode Island. And so, yeah, we're, we're trying to solve a lot of problems all at once. You know, if you kept up with the news, you know that running a meat, meat plants during the pandemic is a massive challenge to keep everybody healthy. We've had great success. Things are going well, but it is, it is a challenge. Yeah. I I now suddenly remember the pig pandemic that I forgot about when COVID hit that. Yeah, that is a challenge. And last question, what is the thing that keeps you going on days when what you're doing seems impossible? I will give myself credit for for one thing that I have done over this kind of entrepreneurial career that I've been building. And that is that I have never allowed myself to stop making deposits in those areas that I know are, you know, fundamental to the life that I, I ultimately want to have in the broader sense. So I have, you know, that's my family, my faith, my friends, like I have kept making deposits in those accounts all along the way. And so when things get crappy, which they, they do regularly, I draw on my family, my friends, my faith. And, and so, you know, in those this 
crazy roller coaster of entrepreneurship that has made a big difference. I mm. can rely on those and I know, hey, if all of this goes away and my dreams, professional dreams evaporate, I, I have those foundational things and, and that's, that can be enough. And, and those scary moments being an entrepreneur help really bring into focus like, yeah, that, that is what makes life enough, those, those things. So it's been Such a good great advice. Good and really great for young entrepreneurs to hear now and not take the approach of being kind of the sacrificial lamb lamb of their company and making those deposits. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being here today. One last thing. Will you tell our audience how they can find your products? Where are you online? What stores should they look at? Yeah, you can find our products online creminelli.com or amazon.com and you know out around the country whole foods is a great retailer uh, you can find our trays at starbucks and and then a lot of other specialty food stores and grocery stores around the country okay we'll go look for them thank you all right thank you thank you for listening to this week's episode of found in the rockies You can find links in the show notes or go to foundintherockies.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop. See you next time.